Welcome to That Christian Geeky Couple from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam. And Andrea Graham. And we'll be talking about The Flash and the episode Flashback, where Barry travels intrepidly way back to 2015. <laughs> Thank you for realizing it was sarcasm. Okay, of course... the. Okay, so, in this episode, in Barry's never-ending quest to get faster, inspired by Wally's reading of journals, he decides to travel back in time to talk to the one man who could help him get his uh, speed up, Ebard Thawne, in the guise of Harrison Wells. And in this episode, Harrison, uh, the actual Harrison, really just loses his temper at people continuing to refer to this Thawn as Wells. And I think that was actually past due. Yes. He is not Wells. I am Wells. Yes, he, w- he went through that. I mean, I think he had other things on his mind before. And, well, and plus, generally, he may have been upset. But um, the... Uh, Earth 2 Wells generally just walks around upset. And so this this was just not on the list of things to really get up, you know, to publicly express himself about until this episode. And it was uh, well-earned. But at any rate, Barry runs back in time. Yeah, that is true, Andrea, that he did gripe about it. Uh, of course, he's kind of been under. I think he'd been understated in the past because he used the Earth two wells, not the Earth well one wells. But it's like a, it's kind of like he keeps needing as kind of point out. You never met the Earth one wells. He died. He killed me bef- on this planet. He killed me before you met me. Remember? Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that he was also under pressure because he is not. Uh, was, I have a curious. I sometimes I wonder what kind of a bond they have with their alternate universe doppelgangers. Whether they would care that someone had killed their doppelganger on the other world. Well, Wells would act like it wouldn't because he tries to be the scientist. But of course, he was going through some stuff because. Uh, despite Jesse's request that he not search for her, uh, he'd gone searching for her. Right. But the level of anger that he showed today on this issue kind of made me suspect that on some level he does care very much that Eobard Thawne killed the Earth One Wells and and stole his life. And it's like, it very deeply resents that, that they keep letting this guy who uh, killed him and impersonated him be, act, they keep acting like he's the real Wells and like he's, you know. The fake, yeah. yeah. But anyway, Barry goes uh, back to 2015 where he encounters the Time Wraith, uh, a creepy golem-esque creature who hunts him down uh, in 2015 for going back in time and messing around. Which, I guess, all things considered, that's better than the pterodactyl creatures that Rose had to deal with uh, in Series 1 of Doctor Who. The same type of thing, though, isn't it? 
Yes, except a little less destructive and more targeted in its focus. And that, of course, gave Thawne, uh, Ebard Thawne, the clue that uh, this was not the right Barry Allen. Um, And Barry essentially, you know, tries to just come up in there in the first place. It's kind of an inconsistent portrayal because at the beginning, he's basically just tries to walk in and casually write down the speed equation, which is not something he had shown any uh, interest in in season one. And... um. Then when Thawne basically knocks him out and puts uh, speed-resistant restraints on him, he uh, essentially uh, improvises a big lie that uh, Ebard Thawne's plan is going to work and that he is trying to repair a uh, time breach in the future. And that if Thawne kills him, he will go ahead and uh, there will be a letter sent out. And generally, Barry is not that good at the whole lying thing. So him coming up with this on the spot certainly is convenient for the writers. In their defense, you never know what you'll be capable of under enough pressure. Now, some personalities would choke. Others would get very creative with seeing the heightening of their abilities. Well, Barry's just never had any talent for it. But then again, if anything would help him become a proficient liar, it's Ebard Thawne vibrating his hand inches away from Barry's heart. That's what I'm saying. Do you see any signs that he might get, you know, better and uh, his skills might get better under pressure? I think the whole speedster thing in the first place kind of makes this believable. I suppose, if you want to go that route. Um, not a whole lot changes um, from the past. There are some interesting interactions and some general fun uh, time travel uh, hijinks. The big thing that changed was with uh, Bradley Hartley, um, who was the... Or Hartley Rathaway, excuse me, who's the Pied Piper... And uh, basically, even though uh, Barry didn't have to mess with the timeline, he did. That seemed a little cheap to me. It felt like they should have had there be more consequences to his actions. Well, they did in the follow-up to his first trip back in time. That that does not make me feel like any less like they went too easy on him this time. In fact, that kind of reinforces the idea that there should have been more consequences in the rules of time travel. Well, Hartley did have a changed uh, character and, you know, worked with Team Flash and actually provided the key for defeating the time race. So he got consequences all right, but it was just all good. Exactly. It does I had nothing on this show today indicates this this is how it should have worked out. And uh, maybe I'm just being a Whovian, but how would this have gone on Doctor Who? Well, it depends. What consequences would you have gotten from this type of meddling? It depends on what mood Stephen Moffat is in on a given day. Yeah, it's generally going to be a little bit more... Yeah, a little bit more, but I, I mean... I think that there was some risk along the way. 
and you were ch- and he was chased by the consequence which was the time race the time race just didn't get him so instead of having actual consequences we have a creature that may or may not actually catch the flash attacking him and that being the uh, consequence and probably the one uh, really nice highlight is iris who is struggling with whether she should start dating again and feeling guilty and conflicted because of Eddie and missing Eddie. So Barry, in the season one world, gets Eddie to record a uh, message for Iris's birthday, which even though it was two months away at the time of the rec- uh, that Eddie was recording it, uh, Barry said he needed it that very day. And Eddie being Eddie, he didn't actually question it. But still, it was a sweet gesture. And more importantly, we did see how he got that uh, tachyon thing that he wore in the Supergirl crossover. It was just kind of a weird uh, consequence of the schedule and the way they did it that we saw him wearing the device uh, on Supergirl before he actually got it on The Flash. But it was only one day difference for people uh, who watched the series uh, live. It was a huge and disconcerting. Okay. Overall, the episode wasn't great, but uh, I think it one thing it did show is how desperate Barry is to beat um, Clone J or whoever Zoom really is and to liberate Earth 2, taking whatever risks are necessary. And there were some fun moments in the episode. Overall, I would uh, give the episode a solid 6 out of 10. Mm, 7. All right. Well, that leads us to a direct-to-video movie. Captain America and Iron Man, Heroes Reborn. Heroes United, I should say. Meh, at least they weren't killing each other. That is always a positive for a superhero story and somewhat of a rarity. The basic plot is that uh, Captain America and Iron Man are on an Avengers base training. And they're arguing over whose style is the best. Um, When they are invaded by Hydra under the control of the Red Skull, whose plan is to steal Stark. Uh, Stark Tech, kidnap Captain America, and uh, replicate an army of evil superhero super soldiers, and turn Captain America into an evil super soldier himself. And uh, it's all about Captain America and Iron Man thwarting it. Personally, I thought it was, it was, let me give this as grand a praise as I could. It was okay. It was Totally non-offensive. It was dumb. It was not dumb. It was enjoyable. It was one of those turn off your brains and just watch a bunch of action and the moral of the story. It was dumb and almost boring. It wasn't. It did not engage me. It engaged me. It was very shallow. There was really no emotional depth to this whatsoever. Well, it was just kind of like an old-fashioned throwback superhero story. And there was even a moral to the story. The moral was that you could learn things for uh, 
learn things from others, like Captain America could learn to improvise, and Iron Man could learn to strategize, though at the end it seemed like the moral became just everybody do whatever they're best at and never mind learning anything from anybody else. But he said it was dumb. I don't think it was that dumb. <laughs> Maybe that's not a great defense. No. I, I, it's like you're just arguing for state of arguing while you're be actually beginning to see my point. I do see I do see the point. This wasn't by any means great, but I I thought it was fun, okay, maybe something that you could watch with the kids without, you know, uh, a whole lot of content objections. It was inoffensive, um, innocuous. And had a few nice moments in it, and a lot of fairly good CGI action. Uh, with our heroes being heroes and not villains or jerks to each other. Which is a huge thing at this time of year. So, overall, I'll give this one a 6 out of 10. Mm, 3. 3. You're very tough on that. All right, well, now we turn to comic books and the adventures of... I debated giving it a two. Okay. We turn to the adventures of Supergirl um, number five. And in that, the, her battle against the evil alien uh, computer hacker uh, continues as uh, when calls in a human computer hacker extraordinaire who talks in code and strange um, jargon and slang, and they use uh, computer screen names. And we learn that Wynn is Supergirl in Action Comics 252. Now, of course, that is actually the first comic in which Supergirl appeared, which... But how did they know that in that world? I mean, that that you just randomly got that username is weird. Um, but Supergirl tracks down the uh, evil computer master and fights her, and um, that's pretty much the story. It plays into our whole concern about privacy and there's, there just was a lot of technobabble in it and a lot of slang that was trying to be cute, but wasn't really. I mean, the ending was, it was okay, but not really um, exceptional. It was just kind of meh. I'm getting kind of bored with people with computer powers being portrayed as evil. I would like to see one, a, you know, someone who has this type of powers who is actually a superhero rather than a villain for a change. That might be nice. Uh, in fact, that the book about an AI that's actually good and positive. Are you aware of any book like that out there? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Isn't there something like a, a surfer webby thingy or something like that? I think it might be called Web Surfer. It might be. It, and might you be one of the authors? Um, It's my book. Yes. Uh, along with Cindy Cop and some uh, others. So pick that up. 
this. I was totally not going to plug myself. Well, there I plugged you. So, <laughs> so how would you rate this? Uh, I will give this one a five. What would you say about it? Oh, honey, that would be kind of in bad taste. When... Rating you're saying would be too biased. Yes. Okay. Very well. All right. Next up, something better. Doctor Who serve you it's the 11th doctor comics uh volume two uh continuing with the doctor and alice and their uh computer arc and jonesy uh, this is kind of a full tardis uh the first issue in this book is actually kind of interesting and confusing mind-bending because uh, it starts at the end of the story and then works backwards and changes in the middle uh leading to a different beginning or ending i will give it one thing it was not as painful to read as the one's story where he encountered somebody who was living life backwards in time yeah, that was a 10th Doctor story uh, that was done with IDW. The next part of the book is uh, actually a pretty interesting uh, story where there is an alien invasion around Earth. It's, it's actually a war that's kind of going on and was started as a result of a couple of cultures unable to agree because on something because uh, they sent out astronauts and they never returned home. And uh, it leads to Alice uh, becoming the infinite astronaut. And it's actually a really, really good story. I won't spoil it, but it is um, actually just incredibly fun to read. Uh, Then the last two issues of the book, I have to admit, are a little bit confusing. Because there has been this evil uh, corporation serve you that the doctor has been dealing with the 11th doctor in one capacity or another for uh, two or three issues and uh, then we get into the last two issues of the book because we deal with serve you incorporated who has been a nemesis off and on for the last half dozen issues and we find out what happens and what they're going for and it's all kind of uh, confusing yeah that was a very it was very, very confusing we finally find out what the doctor wants more than anything in the world that they had offered him is to save lives basically right and they somehow twist are you able to use this desire to twist his mind into coming and working for them and being an evil CEO who helps them hurt people and, you know, doing generally have them doing the opposite of what he wanted to obtain? Is there some sort of weird moral in here? Well, it's probably an anti-corporate thing, but it, it's just like, really, this is your evil corporate plan And, of course, the doctor was prepared to be brainwashed because he left behind a holographic version of himself. And Alice cosplayed as the 11th doctor to tell children uh, stories uh, about the doctor, which was something Martha Jones didn't think of when she was running around when the doctor was uh, imprisoned on the uh, TV show. She had more dignity and self-respect than that. Yeah, Uh, we did kind of get the idea of how Jones adapted the uh, rock star look that he would uh, become famous for. Um, 
Where did he get that from exactly? He got it from some uh, rock star on this planet who he was impersonating in order to tell this whole story. So the ending books are uh, issues are a little bit confusing and not quite as good as the rest of the series. Yeah, they really just did not explain well how they were able to twist his good desires and and to get him to brainwash him to do bad things, especially when he um once he's thinking straight, he has a very simple and very obvious solution to this dilemma. Yes. And why didn't you just respond to their really dumb attempt to brainwash you with this in the first place? Yeah, it's like he planned to be brainwashed and it's just, wow. It, it, it is confusing and, I mean, there's still some good moments in it. I mean, Alice is still a fantastic companion but it did bring the book down. I gave the first eleventh uh, Doctor book of nine. This one, I'm... oh, that reminds me. What about the face of God? Oh yeah, that's back in the middle. So, but we're jumping back, kind of timey wimey here. Uh, this one, I think that there had been a dispute between these two races, and um, she basically just chose to say after seeing all the beauty in there just to say that there's nothing in there it's just lights so essentially to um not make one alien species feel like their particular viewpoint was settled um above another um uh, but the artwork on that was uh fantastic and it very clearly is something there. Yeah. It's not just stupid lights. It's very gorgeous. Yeah. And I, I think, too, she may have been afraid because so many people had gone through there and gotten killed before. That's why she gave that uh, answer. Um, like I said, it was that middle thing is kind of interesting. It's, no, the way they carefully portrayed it is she was too busy grieving. Over her... Yeah. She couldn't see past her grief. Hmm. I had not. I had not read it that way, but I can see now when you say that. What, that because she had had grief about kind of this renewed loss of her mother, and and I, I guess that does say something about our condition and how sometimes um, we can be blinded by what we've been to to the beauty around us and to uh, the presence of God um, in situations so and it's like it just it astounds me that wow no one is capable of going in there looking and seeing the beauty and seeing the wonder finding it astounding and then say okay now I have physical needs I need to I can't just stay here. I just I can't just build three tabernacles and stay here. I have to go back out into the world and eat and drink and you know live. Yeah, yeah. It was astounding. Um, it, it was a it was a very interesting story that middle portion, and I I thought that I I liked the quirkiness of the beginning. The artwork's still good, and there's still some mystery, which I hope they do a better job of resolving in the next book for the eleventh Doctor. Um, overall, 
I, I enjoyed the book fairly well. I would give it uh, seven tortoises out of ten. Hmm. It's like it was a pretty enjoyable read, but there's a lot of things that didn't quite make sense. And, you know, those type of little plot bunnies that you get in Doctor Who. And <laughs> So how much does the bunnies cost it? That's what I'm trying to decide. Seven and a half. All right, seven and a half. Uh, go into the decimal system, and now I've got a few titles just briefly to run through that I've uh, listened to some audiobooks and some big finish audio dramas. And we start with Doctor Who, the Nemonite Invasion. It's an original audiobook featuring the 10th Doctor and Donna, read by Catherine Tate. And it's got the totally original plot, never before seen on Doctor Who, of an alien species, inf uh, parasites, infecting a base full of military uh, people. Never been seen on Doctor Who. Well, unless you count all the times it was done on television, and actually in an audiobook published just nine months before. Uh, this one does deserve a little bit of credit for trying to create some emotional substance in the, its characters. Um, though it did have this um, Commodore, uh, it was set during World War II, who was just kind of bonkers uh, for the sake of complicating the plot. Uh, but there were some really nice emotional moments, and the Doctor really contemplates some of the uh, ramifications of the uh, decisions that he uh, has to make. And uh, does run into a good moral dilemma that has to be resolved. So overall, I'll give this one 7 Tardises out of 10. Next we have Doom Coalition 2, featuring the 8th Doctor and eventually Professor River Song. Though before that happens, uh, we meet the Sonomancer and how the Eighth Doctor helps her come into being. The second and th uh, third stories in this are actually quite uh, remarkable. One set on a TARDIS that's uh, broken down in the middle of the vortex where an experiment is going on. And then the result of that experiment takes the Doctor to 1906 to San Francisco just before the earthquake, to the city in which the uh, Eighth Doctor actually came into existence back in the TV movie. Uh, Mark Platt does a particularly good job on that script. River Song comes in, this is a four-episode box set, she comes in in episode four. And uh, Alex Kingston is, once again, uh, fabulous. Um, I'm not certain, they have the new Doctor Who villain, the Eleven, and I'm not certain he comes off well after a pretty strong introduction in his first story back in the previous box set. But I'm liking where they're going with this series, because they're hinting that there's going to be a lot more heroes and a lot more villains, and that this is going to be a very big story as we work our way through it. Uh, I do One thing about Big Finish's use of River Song is she is forbidden from revealing herself to the Eighth Doctor. Uh, the Eighth Doctor, apparently, when she met the Eleventh Doctor, he gave her a list of all the Doctors and said the Eighth was one she was not allowed to play with. Um, I'm kind of curious how many classic Doctors this applies to. Not allowed to play with the Eighth Doctor. Because it'll mess up something with time and his timeline, because this is just before he becomes the War Doctor. 
Um, uh, he, she's going to be in a box set with the seventh and sixth Doctor um, next year. And, you know, it's going to be a bit difficult if you're going to have the Doctor be in the box set, but you, but you can't reveal yourself to him. So hopefully the sixth and the seventh Doctors are going to be okay for her to reveal herself to. But the eighth isn't, but she, uh, to have an impact and also uh, helps to advance the character of Helen Sinclair. And I really am excited about where the series is going. I'm a little, the only thing that annoys me about it is I have to wait till October to find out what happens next. Still though, I would give this one uh, eight tortoises out of 10. And then next up is The Four Doctors. Now, uh, this is not to be confused with The Four Doctors comic book that we reviewed uh, a few weeks ago. This is not The Four Doctors, it's The Four Doctors. Um, and it's a story, actually, it's a kind of interesting concept where a colonel uh, is exposed to a time travel experiment when he allows the Daleks into a base in order to avert war with the Daleks and finds himself traveling uh, through the Doctor's timeline. And he ends up uh, meeting the Sixth and Seventh Doctors and also interacting with the Fifth. And the Eighth arrives to kind of uh, wrap things up on another end of the installation. Uh, the Fifth through Eighth Doctors only meet briefly, and it's really an obligatory meeting. But uh, it's the character of the Colonel really does grow and change throughout the story, and that really does make it an interesting uh, uh, release. So, despite not quite, uh, being what I expected, I enjoyed it for what it was. And so I'll give the Four Doctors eight Tardises out of ten. And then we go to the fires of Vulcan. Do you remember when the doctor visited uh, Pompeii on TV? Well, it turns out that was actually his second visit to Pompeii. His uh, first visit is in the fires of Vulcan, where he and Mel uh, land in the city. And the doctor has a great sense of foreboding because the TARDIS was found under some ruins in the city of Pompeii. And he assumes that he's fated uh, to die there. Or at least the TARDIS is. This is a very interesting release. The doc seventh doctor and Mel are generally not considered one of the better TARDIS teams. And season 24, the one in which they starred, was to be honest, probably one of the worst uh, seasons in Doctor Who history. But that was because of the scripts that they were handed. And here they really show what they're capable of, with uh, both character uh, uh, leads bringing a great amount of pathos uh, to their roles and to this whole situation. Fantastic guest characters, and it really is one of the better Doctor Who historicals as it does a great job of painting a picture of this city, as well as giving the Doctor and Mel a personal stake in the events, as it's possible that they might die there. The way that they get out of that is a bit of a cheat. But seriously, it's very well dramatized. It's a fantastic performance by Sylvester McCoy, and really just a tremendous historical. Now, in some ways, it may appear that this is a case where the television series contradicts the audio dramas 
because the Tenth Doctor and Donna also came to Pompeii and, of course, didn't run into the Second Doctor and Mel, or the Seventh Doctor and Mel. However, Pompeii was a big city, so they could have been in entirely different parts of the city. There, I fixed it. Basically, the way that you um, that you reconcile the audio drama and the uh, TV episode is that the Seventh Doctor and Mel were in one part of Pompeii, and the Tenth Doctor and Donna were in a completely different part of the city. Yes. Yeah, well, the Tenth Doctor would be aware of that. Even though he got into some serious trouble yeah, he there. He didn't even um, say anything about being needing to be careful to stay away from myself. Well, that's the type of thing that Donna, I think, was somebody who was a friend, but you really just don't want to get too weird at that point. I need to avoid encountering me. You need to stay away from me. You know, what, what do you mean by that? Well, if you see a if you see a short guy with an umbrella, that's me. But you're not a short guy with an umbrella. Yes, I am, and I'm me. Yes, I was. Yeah, and avoid the avoid a redhead. But I'm a redhead. Well, this is another redhead. Uh, both stories really did have separate focuses, but um, yeah, that's how you reconcile it. Um, I will give it a 9 Tardises out of 10. Alright, well that will be it for now. Uh, we will be back again with another episode of That Christian Geeky Couple. Uh, from Boise, Idaho, this is Adam. And Andrew Graham. Signing off. <laughs>